Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui and a big welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Later on, we'll be hearing about loud coral reefs, which are home to all sorts of noisy things, including, it turns out, seaweed. But first, border biosecurity is a big issue for New Zealand. Even though we're hundreds of kilometres away from our nearest neighbour, and although we do our best to stop unwanted organisms arriving in the country, things do get through, often under their own steam. Then we are left trying to find ways to eradicate or at least control the invader. I'm off to Scion to meet Stephanie Sopo to find out about efforts to find a biocontrol agent for one such unwanted nuisance, which was first detected in New Zealand in 2013. So we are in Scion's containment facility inside one of the experimental rooms. So we've passed through five doors to get into this room. So what have we got in this room? So this room is a room we're working on giant willow aphid in. So giant willow aphid is relatively new to New Zealand. It's causing a lot of different problems um, for New Zealanders. And so we're working on a biological control project to try to control this aphid. So tell me a bit more about the problems that it's creating and, and where you find it. Oh, there are a multitude of problems, and we find it everywhere in New Zealand. So does so it spread really quickly? Yes. It's, once we noticed it in New Zealand, we then very quickly, within a matter of months, found it pretty much throughout the country. Its hosts are willows and poplars. And as you know, willows are very abundant throughout New Zealand, both in urban and rural areas. Um, we've also found it on apple trees and pear trees, so it's, it's been found in orchards and on a few native plants as well, Caprosma and Potosporum species as well. So why is it a problem? It's a problem in many different ways. So as the aphid feeds, it's taking the sap out of a plant. So this is a stress on the mainly the willow trees. So The aphids are present in very, very large numbers and they're continuously dripping honeydew out of them so that the plants are losing a lot of nutrients and a lot of water. Uh, We've seen a lot of branch death of willows and even some death of young willow plants that's attributed to giant willow aphid. So willows are important in New Zealand as stabilizers of slopes and um, protecting rivers against flooding And they're also really valuable, certain species in particular are very valuable for bees in early spring when there's not a lot of other resources around for them to get pollen and nectar and build up their populations. That's the willow side of things. Uh, The honeydew itself also also causes a lot of problems. So the honeydew is continually being secreted as they feed and it lands on anything below them. So it lands on the rest of the willow tree, it lands on the understory plants, it lands on your car, it lands on 
your livestock. I've heard it being a problem with it landing on sheep and making them incredibly sticky. Yes, it's very sticky. It's, It's like sugar water. So it does make things sticky and it also makes things black and that's because sooty mold grows on the surface of, of things covered with ah, the so you have black sticky wool. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure the farmers don't like that at all. No, no. And you can see, um, looking around the landscape, um, you can easily spot infested willows by their black trunks as well. So the sooty mold um, causes problems. It, it will interfere with the photosynthesis because it's coating leaves and... So any understory plants may have trouble photosynthesizing. Um, it's also a problem for kiwi fruit growers. So it's sooty mold is something um, that's a problem for export. If you if you're exporting your fruit, just wondering is that honeydew that they produce as attractive to wasps as yes. honeydew in the beech foresters? Yes, and that, that's one of the largest problems is that wasps are very attracted to this. As an it's a new resource in New Zealand and it's very abundant. And so wasp numbers are really booming because of it. So it's adding to all of the wasp problems that we've already had. So it's a health risk. It's a problem for farmers. It's um, a, a real nuisance problem. And it's also really bad for beekeepers because all of these extra wasps are coming in and robbing hives of honey and killing bees. But another problem is the bees themselves are attracted to the honeydew and they take it back to the hive and they make honey with it. And this honey, if there's enough that comes from the giant willow-aphid honeydew mixed in with the, the other sources, it will become crystalline. And so it, it actually hardens inside the comb and the beekeepers can't extract it. Where does it come from? Uh, we're not sure. We have read some literature suggesting that it's native to Eastern Asia, but it's also been present in California for well over 100 years, and we think that maybe have it may have sort of a Pacific Rim distribution initially, but now it's found throughout the world wherever willows are, which is pretty much everywhere. And in fact, Australasia was almost conspicuously free of, of giant willow aphid until these recent years. And it was found in Australia just shortly after it was found here in New Zealand. No idea how it got here? No, we don't know how it got here, but aphids are able to travel um, quite high on air currents, and so it could have come from anywhere. So you're on the hunt for something to try and control it? Yes. The only natural enemy that's that's a parasitoid that is known is one called Pauisia. So we actually first considered chemicals. We considered um, systemic injections into trees and we were were quickly um, alerted by concerned beekeepers that this would would definitely be a no-go and absolutely right. Um, anything that we put into a tree that goes into the aphid could easily come out in the honeydew and and honeydew feeders such as bees themselves um, could pick this up and get poisoned so so that was a no go and so we looked into um, options for biological control and there are a few things we thought about um, one is um, could there be an entomopathic pathogenic fungus out there that we could use and there has uh, overseas been one reported as kind of knocking back the population of giant willow aphid particularly in the autumn when it's moist and uh, we looked into that but the one that was reported wasn't specific to giant willow aphid 
And also, it can be problematic working with those types of organisms. You often have to re-inoculate each year. It's not as good at self-sustaining in the environment unless conditions are constantly good for it. So if we had a maybe a particularly dry year, for instance, um, maybe we'd have to then re-inoculate the following year. Whereas ideally so. you want something that will self-sustain. Yes, yeah. Ladybirds also feed on it. And so we've seen some of the ladybirds we have here in New Zealand, some native ones and some exotic ones feeding on it. Uh, we've also seen the newly introduced harlequin ladybird feeding on it, but the harlequin ladybird is um, a pest in its own right, and we don't want to encourage more issues with that. So we're looking at a parasitoid. So parasitoids are always uh, way more highly specific than any predator, and uh, this one that we have found in the literature and, and since located, um, we think is only found on giant willow aphid. And so we're now working to test that here in our containment facility. So this was, came from California? Yes. So that sounds straightforward, but was it? No, no, it definitely wasn't. Um, we had a, a scouting mission early on just to look for the presence of giant willow aphid to see if we could find it. And we had a second trip. We did import on that second trip some giant willow aphids in the hope that they were containing parasitoids inside them. And we attempted to rear them here, and we didn't get anything out. So we undertook a third trip, and this third trip was successful. And um, one of the ways in which we managed to, to make it a highly targeted trip was to enlist citizen science to help us locate areas with aphids. So uh, one individual in particular, Damon Teague, who's based in Oakland, he's a very, very keen individual, and he helped us really a lot. Um, he found some populations in downtown Oakland that were heavily infested with the parasitoid, and so that was kind of our main focus of this third trip. So you succeeded, you got a whole lot of giant willow aphids which had the parasite inside? Yes, so when an aphid becomes parasitized, at first you don't see anything, the aphid's walking around looking like a normal aphid, um, but it's got a developing larva inside it. And eventually that larva gets so big it kind of takes over the body of the aphid and it, the aphid becomes distorted. It looks very fat and round. And then at that point it's called an aphid mummy. It, it stops moving. The parasitoid actually fixes the body of the aphid to another object, usually the host plant. And we were able to find some of these aphid mummies that hadn't yet popped, so to speak. <laughs> and um, bring them back on short sections of willow stem and, and tubes inside other containers, inside a chili bin <laughs> on the airplane. <laughs> Into this containment facility. Yes, we came directly here after landing in Auckland. Yeah. So what have we got in the room here? So in this cage here, what you're seeing is um, colonies that are set up to maintain the development of the parasitoid. So we're, we're now in the seventh generation since the import, uh, which was in December 2017. Gosh, and so that's quite a few generations already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're up to about 1,900 individuals reared from an initial uh, population of about 50 wasps that we brought in. However, uh, some of those turned out to be hyperparasitoids, so we've, we've gotten rid of those, parasitoids of the parasitoid, and we had uh, 10 individual female poesia that was our target, and this have all come from them. <laughs> so, so you've got them in a little plastic tent? Yes. 
And another little plastic tent inside a plastic tent. Yeah. So inside here, we've got giant willow aphids on willow stems. They're enormous. They are big for an aphid. They're among the biggest in the world, about six millimeters when they're full size. And very dark coloured, aren't they? Yes. And if you look closely, there's a shark's fin on their back, which is a really intriguing feature that we don't know. Oh, we don't yes. know its purpose. <laughs> Sharks two, of the aphid world. <laughs> yes. They can lay up to two offspring per day when the temperatures are, are right, say, say early to mid-20s. So the populations build up very, very quickly. So um, you've got a stem of willow in there for them to live on and feed yes. on. Yeah. And so this is where we would introduce um, a parasitoid. The parasitoid female may be mated or unmated, so we would control all that before we release her in the cage. If she's mated, she can produce male and female parasitoids. If she's unmated, she'll only produce males. And the natural sex ratio appears to be biased towards the females, so we are, are actually sometimes looking for males for mating. So sometimes we'll put a, an unmated female in there. But an unmated female can still basically lay eggs that hatch and will yep. still kill your aphids for you. Yes. Oh, that's yep. really interesting. Yep. The aphids themselves are only females. No males have ever been found, so they're parthenogenetic. And they do have a winged generation. You can see in some of the cages, they're wanting to disperse, but there's nowhere to so, go. So you're either an aphid with wings or an aphid without wings. Is yes. that how it works? Yeah. And so uh, the parasitoids are released into here, and they tend to walk up and down the stem and sting the aphids. The aphids can't do much about it. They do attempt to kick the wasp away by waving their, their hind legs. It's not much of a self-defense strategy, no. though. No, it's not. <laughs> Are they parasitizing enough aphids for effective control? It's hard to say at this point. We're still getting a handle on the numbers for, for what a single female wasp, how many progeny she can produce. Um, sometimes we're seeing a small number, uh, maybe only 20 mummies in a cage that, that one female's been in, but up to about 60. So, and their lifespan is generally two to three weeks. Um, under these conditions here we're at 20 degrees so you've got this bit of the project going on you're trying to see how effective the parasitoid is with with the giant willow aphid do you also have another set of work that you need to do to make sure this parasitoid doesn't affect anything else that we don't want it to yes so in new zealand we have uh, other aphids of course about 100 species or a little more of other aphids a lot of those are introduced species so not such a concern, but there are a number of native species of aphids. And so we are um, host-testing for specificity with, at this moment, we have plans to test five other species of aphids. One of them is a closely related exotic species that we actually have not had any positive hits with, um, but it's the most likely to be parasitized by Poesia because it's the most closely related. All the other ones um, in New Zealand, including the natives, are very distantly related, so we don't expect there to be any parasitism of them, but we are testing these other species, including two species that could be considered the Tuatara of the aphid world. <laughs> There's some really ancient species. They come from ancient lineages. And others um, were basically covering all taxonomic groups, so 
Aphids are um, in what we call a family, and the family is divided into tribes. And so we're testing a representative from all tribes that are of aphids that are represented in New Zealand. Are they hard to find? Yes, some of them are very hard to find. Um, some have actually been easy. There's an aphid, Neophylaphus totre, which is on totre, and we were able to find that here at Sion on site. Um, which is great because we know the history of the host plants. We know they haven't been sprayed with insecticides. Others have proven more difficult. There's one on Nothophagus that we've been having trouble finding. And so it is tricky um, because we're rearing all of these different species with different habits, and we don't know much about any of them, and they all have different host plants. And the host plants respond differently to being indoors on a, you know, in a beaker. <laughs> I cut stem. So it's been challenging, yes. So you're learning a lot about some of our native aphids along the way. Yes. So what happens next? Well, we have a lot of host testing to do. We have completed testing on one species and we have two others underway at the moment. It takes about a month to complete a single replicate. So we've, we've got a few going at all times and we're hoping to finish up late next summer. And after that, if all has gone well, the results are favorable, then we will be applying to the EPA for permission to release and doing a lot of public engagement. Thanks, Stephanie. That was Stephanie Sopo from Scion. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pānaki a papatuanuku, tangaroa, meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now... It's time for a bit of eavesdropping in the tropics. Giacomo Gioli is a marine acoustician at Niwa, working on sounds in the sea. Before he came to New Zealand, he did some work on coral reefs in Hawaii with Lauren and Simon Freeman. They're a husband and wife team of oceanographers who work for the United States Navy. I caught up with them on Skype to find out about noisy seaweeds and their role in underwater soundscapes. A coral reef creates a lot of sounds, and we refer to the cacophony as a soundscape. And you have a soundscape in a forest, you have soundscapes in the city, and a coral reef soundscape is, is quite similar to both of those. Uh, it's a very busy and bustling place with many animals and plants. Most of the sounds that these animals make are what we call transient. So like pings, pops, clicks, and many thousands of those together uh, combine to form the coral reef soundscape. Superficially, if you just listen to it when you go snorkeling, for example, it almost sounds like rain. Uh, And rain is a bunch of transients. So each droplet makes a sort of short sound. But on a coral reef, what's very special is that each transient conveys information about its producer. So the frequencies in each sound, the duration, the rise time and fall time, all of those pieces of information give us evidence for what the sound producer may be, what it might be doing, and its characteristics. It must be incredibly challenging to try to work out then what is making all these individual sounds, because I'm thinking that... I can go into a forest and I can see the trees blowing in the wind. I can see a bird sitting on a branch over there. There's a deer barking in the distance. I can, I can match 
what those sounds are with what's producing those sounds, that must be much more challenging in a coral reef, A, because you're underwater, and B, you're dealing with such a vast number of species. That's true. And in addition, you have a confounder on a coral reef where you have one animal that produces sound that is much louder than everyone else, and that is the snapping shrimp. But there are still other sounds that you can hear. And while they are confusing, uh, there are some general rules that we can follow. For example, the lower frequency a sound, the longer the wavelength, and roughly speaking, the larger the animal has to be to produce a sound of that wavelength. So Lauren published a paper in 2016 where one of the findings was that when you have a healthy reef with larger animals on it, the soundscape has a larger low-frequency component. So this was a study that Simon and I did together in Hawaii. And part of what was interesting about this paper is that we were looking for something quite different when we originally collected our data. We were doing two parallel studies of the coral reef ecology throughout the whole Hawaiian island chain and the acoustics of hermit crabs, which was what Simon was looking at. But what we found when we put those data sets together is, first of all, we reiterated that coral reefs are very, very loud noisy places. We also saw that the reefs around the different islands had quite different acoustic signatures. And when we started applying different statistics to the data, we realized that those acoustic signatures told us quite a bit about the reef, whether it was a relatively pristine area, whether it was more degraded. And that's when we got our first clue that there might be a sound signature to algae because the most degraded reefs also have the most algae. And they had this curious high-frequency acoustic signature that we only noticed during daylight hours. It didn't show up after dark. So Giacomo, I'll throw to you at this point. Would you like to tell me where that led? At that time, I was in Hawaii uh, working in a a bioacoustic lab at the University of Hawaii. And I met Simon through the Acoustical Society of America. And he approached me to try to do a laboratory experiment to actually try and measure whether photosynthesis by algae could produce sound as a byproduct of the release of oxygen bubbles in the water. So obviously this was too difficult to do in the field because you're confounded by all the other noise. So you were isolating it down to one particular species of algae? Yes. We just selected Gracilaria because it's invasive to Kanioe Bay, which is where the lab was located. So it was easy to actually harvest the algae because the state was very happy to actually remove it from the natural environment. So we collected some and, yeah, we did the experiments in a tank. When we think of marine algae, when we think of seaweeds, we tend to think of quite big things. What were you dealing with on the coral reef? Gracilaria is a brown algae. If you look at it, it looks like a lot of sticks. It's almost like a, a weedy mat, yeah, um, and the, the the sticks, as you call them, um, they have a very similar consistency to the stipes of Eclonia radiata, except they're much thinner, and there are no leaves. There's just a dense mat of the stuff. And I should mention this algae is invasive because if you try and pick some up underwater, it sort of fragments, and all of these little fragments become new algae. So uh, it's really difficult to get rid of. And Lauren, can you explain why? An algae like Gracilaria is a sign of probably a slightly unhealthy reef? Coral reefs are held in a very delicate balance where 
the ground cover can be taken by either coral or algae. And in a healthy coral reef system, the algae is grazed on by herbivores, mostly herbivorous fish. And that gives the corals the opportunity to cover more of the ground and build up that reef structure that is so beautiful and is home to the really nice biodiversity that everybody loves to see on the coral reef and that builds that healthy ecosystem. But when you start to take the herbivores away and or add more nutrients to the water from different types of runoff, that gives the algae a competitive advantage. The algae is able to grow much faster than the coral, so it just needs a tiny edge, be it additional nutrients from farmland or from urban development, or be it removal of those herbivorous fish, and it's able to literally grow over the coral quite quickly. In the case of Gracilaria, it also is able to spread very quickly because it has that ability to fragment. Yeah, and one implication of this competitive process is that when the algae grow overgrows over the coral, it kills the coral because um, we have to remember that the corals still needs light to survive. So you bought some into a tank in the lab. What did you do then, Jaco? First of all, we did a really good process of uh, sorting the algae fragments that we were using because we had to be sure that we were not introducing any other organism into the tank. And uh, we put an hydrophone in it and we exposed pretty much the algae to a cycle of uh, daylight and nighttime. And at the same time, we measure the oxygen concentration into the tank, which would be a function of the photosynthesis that's going on. We actually have a little sound clip. So let's listen to that sound clip, which is very subtle, and then I'm going to get you to describe what we just heard. Okay, I realise this is tricky on radio, but I can confirm that near the end of that white noise was a very short, high-pitched click. Here it is again. It's really faint, but if if you're really a good listener, you would have been able to hear a little clip, a little clicking sound. The sound that algae makes is due to bubbles of oxygen that form on the body of the plant, and after the bubbles reach a certain size, the buoyancy force overcomes the surface tension force, and the bubble will separate from the body of the algae. And when it does that, the bubble is momentarily non-spherical, and that creates a a perturbation, and uh, as the bubble becomes spherical again, it oscillates in pressure and volume, and uh, it creates a little sound source. So the bubble rings, and the bubble will ring at a very, very high frequency if it's a small bubble. That that frequency is proportional to the radius. So uh, a famous scientist by the name of Maynard uh, derived uh, through mathematics and also experiment the mathematical relationship between the radius of a bubble and the, the frequency of its ping in 1933. And uh, we use that equation to, to validate our observations. And uh, the, the little ping is proportional to the size, and uh, lots and lots of bubbles like the one you heard going off uh, at a very similar time to, to other bubbles would create a, a sort of cacophony that is audible even above other biological noise. So any one of those bubbles is incredibly small in terms of the sound it makes. But as you say, if you've got a whole coral reef with lots of algae on it, it's like an entire orchestra of little bubbles being released. Exactly. And we knew that the bubbles were going to be quite quiet in a small tank, just with a small amount of algae. But in the wild, you can definitely 
see, at least with um, a computer readout, that there is a contribution from high-frequency bubbles if you have a lot of algae in the area. The only confounding thing is that when it's when the ocean is rough, when there's a lot of wind and wave action, well, breaking waves are noisy, and they produce a lot of sound through the production of bubbles too. So uh, on a rough day, you may have some confounding noise from other bubble processes, but on a calm day, you won't. So part of what was really elegant about this collaboration and this study is that it married two well-known phenomena from two different fields. Any marine biologist will happily tell you that underwater algae photosynthesize, and as a result, they produce oxygen and nitrogen, which makes bubbles that rise through the water column. And any underwater acoustician will tell you that bubbles underwater make sound, but they've typically been studied in terms of breaking waves or streams or rivers. And there's very little interplay between those two fields. So it wasn't until Simon and I had done this coral reef soundscapes work and noticed this correlation that we started to have this idea. And it's a very logical one. And once we started pitching it to both communities, nobody really questioned whether or not bubbles make sound and nobody really questioned whether or not algae make bubbles. It was more an issue of classifying the sound. And I think that's part of why this has grasped so much interest across a wider field of ocean science. This is a wonderful observation, but what is the utility of the observation? Now, it could potentially become very useful where one day someone could put a hydrophone over the side of a boat and say, oh, this coral reef is 20% less healthy than last year exactly. based on the increase in algae. Or um, someone who runs an algal farm could put a hydrophone in the water and say, oh, this algae is not receiving enough nutrients. But until we validate the other sources and quantify things like what sort of primary productivity rate pertains to what kind of sound, we, we won't know for sure. Thanks, Simon. That was Simon Freeman, and we also heard from Lauren Freeman, and they are both with the US Navy. Giacomo Gioli is at Niwa. And that's all we've time for this week. If you'd like to listen to these stories again, or any from our very large back catalogue, head along to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to us as a podcast at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and most other podcast places. Just search for RNZ, Our Changing World. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science, or email us at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for listening. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.